99% of the time, I am proud to be a Christian, okay? Uh, Y'all know me. If you've heard me teach before, I like to confess things, so I have another confession. There is 1% of the time that I kind of go, oh, and it's usually when other Christians say something that's really offensive, okay, and I don't want to be associated with them. But there's also times when I hear something that's just really cheesy or corny associated with Christianity, and I'm like, oh, man, it's kind of cringy. And there are some sayings that do that. Let me just give you a few. All right, and I've said some of these, and the hearts behind these are really good. Don't tell God how big your problem is. Tell your problem how big your God is, right? Uh, The principle behind that is really, really good. Uh, But this is probably something that we shouldn't say to someone when they're like really, really hurting or in a lot of pain. And honestly, if we we really did this, we'd look like a bunch of crazy people just talking to our problems while we walk around, right? Um, But there's other ones. And I have said this one a lot. Do your best and God will do the rest, okay? When I was in high school, I played basketball. This is what I said every free throw, okay? Literally, do your best, God will do the rest. And I would shoot every time. I told Alex that the other day, and she was like, oh, that's cringy. And uh, my, honestly, my free throw percentage wasn't that great, so I'm not sure if he was listening. Um, in the dark, follow the sun, right? Got to love a good Christian pun. Uh, another one, if you can't, oh, I like this one. If you can't sleep, don't count sheep. Talk to the shepherd. Uh, when you think about this one, this one's hilarious, because what we're really telling people if we say this is, hey, if you really want to fall asl- asleep, just talk to God. It'll knock you out quick, okay? <laughs> That's what you should do. Uh, there are other ones. I'm sure this is in some dentist office somewhere. Fight truth decay. Study the Bible daily. Uh, if I walked in to that dentist office, I'd, I'd walk right out. All right, here's one more. This one isn't as funny, but we use it. Lord willing, right? Or if the Lord wills. Uh, I've used it plenty of times. Uh, and I actually think it's a really good saying if used the right way. But a lot of times this can be used as almost like a wishing well. Like we just tag this on to the end of whatever we desire and kind of gives it more of a chance to come true, right? Because we're trying to align our will with God's or whatever. So we might say something like, man, it's Sunday. I'm going to go to Slim's after church. And uh, man, we're going to get a table, Lord willing, right? It's, it's kids eat free, so you never know, but if the Lord wills it, we're going to make this happen. Uh, and we might use this phrase, and not all the time, but use it as a tagline to almost make ourselves sound more spiritual or to hopefully maybe God hears us and makes that thing happen. And so while this can be a kind of corny Christian catchphrase to some people, to a lot of us, this is the most reassuring saying that we might be able to say. Because when we say, if the Lord wills or Lord willing to something in our life, what we're saying is we are releasing control and admitting that we are not in control. And the only way that this might happen is if the Lord wills it. One of the healthiest things we can do is to release control of situations in our lives. One of the scariest things for us is if we were actually in control. If, if all of our future depended on the decisions that we could make and that was it. But when we use this, when we, when we release control, it actually brings a lot of health, a lot of hope, a lot of security. And so we're going to see James address this saying uh, in chapter 4 today. So if you have your Bibles, James chapter 4, it's actually the shortest section of Scripture that we're going to cover. It's only five verses. So in this whole series, this is the, the smallest chunk that we'll teach on. So I'm just going to read it all. Um, here we go. Verse 13 is where it starts. 
Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. So there's a lot packed into these five verses, and we're going to see James address, in a lot of ways, the business community. Those of you who say you're going to go do this, this, and this, you've got it all figured out, and you're boasting, and here's kind of how you should reframe uh, your heart. And as I was studying this, one of the first questions that, that came to me that I asked is, is planning bad? Because it seems like James is saying, like, you're thinking ahead, and you're getting all these things laid out, and you don't even know. So is planning bad? Well, I don't think it is. In fact, here at Fellowship, sometimes I feel like all we do is plan, right? We just, we always think ahead and dream. So we have, uh, we do SWOT analysis every year, sometimes twice a year, where we look at strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. Uh, What can we be doing better? We have a playbook that lays out all of the goals for each of our teams that we're going to have for the whole fiscal year. We have PFSs, position focus sheets, where I have all of my own individual goals laid out that I'm looking at weekly and monthly, try to make sure that we're planning ahead. We have 5-2-1 planning that lasts about six months every year, where we dream for five, think for two, plan for one. We have a fractal that splits up different job responsibilities. Y'all get the picture. We plan a lot. I don't think what James is saying is that planning is wrong at all. We have to. In life, in business, What he's saying is that presuming is wrong and thinking that you know what is coming. That's where we can be off a little bit. But even in marriage, we we usually have one that's the planner, right? One one person that really plans things out and then the other one who just lives, you know, on the fly, right? The heathens, uh, I would call them. Uh, You probably can tell which one I am. Going on vacation with me would be miserable. I feel bad for people because I always have an agenda, Even if my agenda is to have no agenda, that is my agenda for the day. We will do nothing, and that is what we will do. Um, And so I don't think planning is necessarily bad, but man, when we presume to know what will happen tomorrow, we get ourselves in a little bit of trouble. And what James is saying is when we say, well, God is our God of Sundays, but Monday through Saturday is actually up to me and the decisions that I can make and the way that I can set up my own life, that's where we can get off a little bit. When we live this American dream of like, man, I want to accumulate and do all of these things to better myself so that I can be set up for tomorrow, James says, hold up. You don't even know what tomorrow will bring. And in a lot of ways, it seems so normal just to plan and think ahead and dream. And I think that's the way we're wired. And I think it is normal. And that's what James is addressing. You know, last month when we were in here, we talked about unconscious bias when we show favoritism or bias against people without even realizing it. And I think a lot of times we also have unconscious presumption that we just assume things are going to happen, that tomorrow will be given, and James is kind of rewiring us to see it a little bit differently. So he's going to address two presumptions that we make. And the first is that we can control what's going to happen tomorrow. And James very clearly says, hey, tomorrow is unpredictable. Here's 13 and 14 again. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know, you have no idea what tomorrow will bring. It's unpredictable. If it's there, we, we could plan and we think we might know, but 
really, we have no idea. And let's step out of Scripture. We can look at hundreds of examples probably in our own lives where this has hit us hard in the worst way. Uh, if y'all have ever heard of the year 2008, ever heard of her? Uh, she really took, you know, a big hit on a lot of people's lives. And I don't think there were a ton of people 2006, 2007 going, oh man, things are about to crash. There were some, but we would have lived a lot differently if we had known that. But it, it hit And we couldn't predict in a lot of ways um, the way that that would really affect us. And James is going to point out here that, hey, we may know a lot about our lives. We may know a lot about business, but only the Lord knows about tomorrow. Only Him. And we can't fully know. But yet we are so, I think, ingrained to want to control the things that we can't control. That's where anxiety breeds from. I learned that in counseling this past year as I was walking through some things that like, man, when we try to control the things we can't control, uh, we're going to be really anxious. Controlling the uncontrollable, it's why people have pet tigers. Uh, I don't get this. Last week I offended a couple of people who had pet snakes, or last month when I taught in here. I would probably say the same thing about someone who has a pet tiger. Why? Like, it's crazy. It doesn't make sense. Did you know that there are estimated about 4,000 tigers in the wild all over the world? In the U.S., in zoos and in private homes, did you know it's estimated there are five to 7,000 tigers? More than in the entire world. Because people are obsessed with trying to have these things as pets. And I look at it and I go, you realize that is a tiger. And at the end of the day, it will do what it wants. And it can do what it wants. In a lot of ways, I think that's our tomorrow is that we, we kind of bring it in and we pet it and say, man, we've got all these nice plans for you. And then we wake up and tomorrow hits and it could be totally different than what we had actually planned for or what we thought would happen. Uh, just to get practical with you, uh, I didn't think I would be teaching up here as of two weeks ago. Um, some things kind of shifted around and, and so now I'm here. You look back four years ago, I didn't think I'd be in student ministry. I never wanted to be a student pastor, to be honest. Uh, I honestly didn't think I'd ever be in ministry. Ten years ago, that wasn't the plan. Ask my in-laws or my parents or my wife. Like, I was in grad school, and I was going down this path, and I didn't think that this is where I would be. And a lot of times, no matter how much we plan, we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. But we're constantly trying to look around the corner and get a peek and see if we can control it a little bit. And every time we do that, in a lot of ways, it sets us up for disappointment or failure. This is going to hit home with some of you. Did anybody own a house in downtown Bentonville like 15 years ago and you sold it? Right? There are some, okay? And now you have to go back to counseling. You had forgotten about it, but I I just reminded you. But we can think that we're going to know what the future is going to hold. And we look back and we go, oh, missed on that one. Never, never saw that one coming, or, man, I didn't think my life would turn out this way. I was talking to Bart about this teaching, and he was emphasizing the difference between people in business and the people in farming. See, people in farming tend to know that the, the outcome of their work is fully dependent in a lot of ways on things outside of their control, right? And so when, when a farmer gets to the end of a year and they have a good crop, they are quick to give thanks to things outside of their own work. Thanks to the Lord, right? For, for bringing good weather and that kind of thing. But in business or in life for most of us, when things turn out well, we are quick to give kudos to ourselves. Like, man, I made the right call. Or man, that was a really good decision that then set me up to do this. And James is letting us know that we actually don't have control over 
our tomorrow, that it's in someone else's hands besides ours. And let's say that you are the one person in the entire universe who magically figures out how to control your tomorrow, right? You just figure it, figure it out, and you've got it in control. Uh, we're going to see James address something else, and, and it's this second presumption that not only is it unpredictable, but we don't even know that it's going to come. And if you look at this, who is in control of my tomorrow? Do we know what's going to happen? These are some things that we might see in our culture, okay? Uh, God helps those who help themselves. I hear this in Christian communities all the time. Uh, I've probably said this. Uh, and, and the principle behind it is probably good, that like we don't need to just sit back and wait on things to happen, that we need to act. But the subtle message here is that who's actually in control? You are. And if you go for it, then God's going to help you. Uh, Dr. Seuss says this, only you can control your future. And I'm like, man, I can't even keep my kids from pooping on our living room floor. How am I going to like take control of my whole future? That seems so far-fetched to me that I could be the one to control it. If y'all have ever heard of the famous poem Invictus, this is how it ends. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. My eternity, my destiny lies with me and the decisions and the choices that I make. And then the great theologian Bobby Brown or Britney Spears, depending on what uh, era you were born in, says, I don't need permission. Make my own decisions. That's my prerogative, right? It's up to me. I'm the one who makes the call. But even if I figure out how to control tomorrow, man, it may never happen. James 4.14, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You know, working with junior high students, you tend to keep one of these uh, around and handy quite often. Here's some air freshener. And I want you to see what James is saying here, okay? Are you watching? He says, all of eternity is happening and here is you. Did you see it? Right? You can actually see it a little bit, but watch it again. Here we go. Here, this is your life right here. In the grand scheme of things, what is our lives? We are a mist that appears for a little while, and then it's gone. And I want to sit in that for a second, because I think if I was teaching this in FSM with our students, I would have to camp out here for a little while and really sell them and convince them that, like, you know, you're not immortal, that, that you know, your life could end, and I would really have to push them. I don't think I have to do that in here. I think the weight of this verse holds true to all of us. Whether we watch a family member go through death, death happens unexpectedly. All of us, even recently, have probably experienced this in some way. That our lives go by so fast. What do young parents hear all the time? I probably hear it multiple times a week. Man, cherish that time. It goes by fast, right? The days go by like years, the years go by like days, they're gone. And it's true. I think sometimes we, we forget that and think that, man, we're guaranteed all of this time. And James is reminding us that, hey, tomorrow actually may not happen. My five-year-old figured this out this week, okay? I took a, a dad moment. I don't know if it was a good one or a bad one. Uh, only time will tell. But we were at dinner a couple of nights ago, and he was talking about how he's going to grow up big and tall like me, which is funny, right? <laughs> and 
and we're processing. He's like, I'm going to be old like you one day, Dad. And I was like, yeah, and then what's going to happen? And I was just, I was kind of leading him there to see if he would get there. And he goes, well, then I'm going to be old like Lolly and Pop and Lolo and Nisi, which are his grandparents. I was like, okay, and then what's going to happen? He goes, well, then I'm, I'm going to be 100. I was like, all right, buddy, and then what do you think is going to happen? He goes, I will die. And in that moment, I'm like, should I be doing this right now? We're at dinner. <laughs> but I just went for it. I was like, yeah, buddy, you will. And he, like, just in the middle of the restaurant, just starts bawling, crying, I don't want to die. I'm like, bud, 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 we don't have to talk about this right now. It's okay, it's okay. But he just kept bringing it up. And for like three and a half hours, he was asking questions. And then he asked something, and my answer was like, well, buddy, everybody's going to eventually die. And like, that set him off. Because then he's like, Dad, I don't want you to die. I don't want this. And so for three and a half hours, like, I was on the verge of tears and laughter every time he thought of someone new because he was like, baby Bill's going to die one day. And I'm like, yeah, I know, Hank. I'm sorry, bud. And, you know, no one, you know, nothing going on over here. Don't worry. We're just sitting in a restaurant crying. It's all good. Talking about the afterlife. And uh, in that moment, like, he got it. Something that I think a lot of us forget all the time, that like, man, this world is temporary. It really is. And that is a hard truth to set in. I think it's good to wrestle with, but it's really hard. Death is not natural. We say that all the time, like, ah, it's just just natural. It's just part of life, but it's not. It's actually a result of the fall. God didn't intend for us to have to experience this, but because of sin, we do. And it's really, really hard. You know, the psalmist at multiple places reminds us of this. Oh, Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Psalm 39. Psalm 92. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Psalm 102. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. Sometimes I think it takes the the existence of tomorrow to be threatened for us to really appreciate uh, today. You know, that happened to me uh, back in January. I just had some heart issues that made me think that I was going to die. I was mimicking heart attack symptoms and having anxiety attacks and all that. And it really made me go, man, what am I living for? What, what am I putting my heart and effort and soul into today? So tomorrow's not guaranteed. And even if we do get it, we don't know what's going to happen. And so it leaves us with this dilemma that we have to figure out, so how do we actually live? Knowing those things are true, it's not guaranteed we can't control it. How do we actually live? And we get this tension of my will versus thy will. James 4.15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. You double down on your boasting. Not only are you boasting, but you're boasting about your arrogance. All such boasting is evil to think that we have it all figured out. And we live in this tension of my will or thy will. You know, godly planning and perspective doesn't mean that we keep everything the same and just add this tagline of if if the Lord wills or Lord willing. This that, that James is talking about is a constant disposition to the will of God, to the desires that he has for our lives over any dream or desire that we may have. God, this is what I want, but what do you want from me? This is where I think I should go, God, but where would you have me go? What step would you have me take? It's a condition of the heart that reflects that we are not in control and we know it. That God is in control, that he knows our first day and he knows our last. That he knows where we will work, 
and when we will stop working, that he knows who we will marry, if we will get married. He knows where we will go, what our lives will be like, and we don't. And so may his will be done. But we're left with this tension of, so how do we actually, you know, know the will of God, follow the will of God? And I think there's a dream and a reality, okay? The dream would be this new version of uh, Mario Kart. I grew up playing Mario Kart. I'm sure a lot of you did too. In one of the latest versions, there's this mode, uh, I think it's called like smart steering or something, uh, where you can play the game, but there's actually some boundaries that keep you from going off the road. You can't see them. But it's great for little kids. You just give them the controller and they think they're driving, right? And so they're going along, and if they try to steer off the road, it actually keeps them on the road. And as frustrating as like Rainbow Road and other things are, that would have been really nice as a kid to be able to just stay on there. And I think this is our dream for God's will in our lives. Like, let me just go and drive, and Lord, as I'm going, you just keep me on the road. I don't have to make a lot of decisions. I can let go of the wheel, and it'll just, you know, keep going. Jesus, take the wheel. You just drive. And I don't have to do anything. It just keeps me on there. But I think the reality in a lot of ways of finding God's will is we're like NFL quarterbacks. Do y'all know what this guy is doing right here? He's trying to hear the play because for the last 25 years, there's technology in the NFL that allows the quarterback to have a microphone in his helmet. And that microphone has a one-way frequency to the head coach on the sidelines and so, or the offensive coordinator, whoever's communicating the plays into them. It's, it's fascinating, right? Um, only one person on offense and one person on defense can have it. They have a green sticker on the back of their helmet, just in case you were wondering, okay? Uh, but there are some rules set up where, like, the, the, uh, the booth can't be the ones communicating. They can't have an unfair advantage of being able to see everything. Only the coach can from here. And when the play clock hits 15 seconds... Okay, the frequency dies, and the QB's on his own. He can't hear anymore. He has to go based on what he's heard. I think a lot of ways in life, that's where we're at, is we're hearing, and we're trying to go, okay, I think this is what the Lord wants me to do, but like, something goes dark, and now we're having to make a decision, and we're, we're wanting to hear very clearly from the Lord, but it's just not happening, and so we're walking in faith based on the practice and the things that we've learned and done, and so it makes me go, how do we know what the Lord's will is for our lives? I get asked this probably more often than, than any question in student ministry. And it may not be that blunt, but kids will say, what college should I go to? Right? Should I play this sport? Should I pursue this guy or this girl? That kind of thing. And uh, here's what I like to, to say and think through. How do we know the Lord's will? I think we can listen to three things. We can listen to his words, his people, and his voice. Let me explain those. We listen to the words of the Lord. Where do we get the words of the Lord? From Scripture, right? And I get that this is not a playbook that lays out everything for us. But what I've noticed in my life is when I'm consistently in God's Word, okay, He may not lay out exactly what I need to know to make a certain decision that day, but when I'm aligning my will and my heart to His by learning from Him, I am more in tune to what he desires for my life and where he would have me go. And there are some times where I read something and go, oh man, that's exactly what I needed to hear. But there are other times that I just read and take it in, and I don't realize how it's actually transforming my heart and my mind to know what he wants for my life. But I also think we listen to his people, that we find godly people who are walking with the Lord, who may have expertise in the types of decisions that we're trying to make, business or life or whatever, and we say, hey, here's what I'm thinking. What do you think about this? Give me an outside perspective and allow the Lord to work through those people and actually speak some truth into our lives. 
And then we also listen to the voice of the Lord. Now, you hyper-conservatives are probably freaking out, like, the voice of the Lord, what is that, right? This audible voice, that doesn't exist. Um, here's the deal. For some of us, for most of us, it may not be audible, but we all can experience promptings from the Holy Spirit, God Himself who lives inside of us, who over time, as we're praying through and making decisions and as we're listening, like, we feel that urge that, man, I think this is what I need to do. God, I think you're leading me towards this. And He starts bringing certain people in front of us over and over, and we, we start to realize, I think He's starting to move in my heart to make these decisions. Sometimes he tells us to move, right, until he tells us to stop, and sometimes we stop until he tells us to move. And we live in this tension of, do we wait, do we go? But man, when we are doing these three things, he's going to make it clear to us, one way or the other, the decisions that we are to make. Now, you know who lived perfectly in this tension and put it on display for us, and we actually get a glimpse into it? It's Jesus, Right, if you think about that moment leading to the cross where Christ was about to do the most incredible act in human history by going to the cross, he, he goes to the garden first. And we see this in Luke 22 as Jesus is in prayer, knowing, he's starting to figure out, man, this is actually going to happen, and it's going to happen soon. And he prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus lived in this tension. And here's what I want, God. I don't want to go to the cross. Like, if there's a way that you can just step in and save humanity so that I don't have to die, please, Father, do it. But not my will, but yours be done. I submit to you. I may not like the outcome, God, but I trust that your plan is bigger than mine and that you really do have my best interest and the people's best interest in mind through this. And so he went to the cross. Man, he lived in that tension. And I'll be honest, if, if the James passage ended here, I'd be so happy, right? We can know that tomorrow's not guaranteed. We can't control it, so we can trust in the Lord. But there's one verse that we haven't gotten to yet. We read at the beginning, but here's what he says in verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. And this is where I go, come on, James. Like, you know, all the things that you've hit us with in, in this book, it, I think if I tried really hard, I could avoid most of the major evils that he has laid out, if I really, really worked at it. But who in their right mind can seize every single opportunity to do good in their life and never miss a single one? And James says, when we miss one, we're sinning. It's like this umbrella thing, and I'm like, really? Why did you have to throw that in there? Like, I don't like that at all. But the reason I think it's here, and at first glance, I was like, this seems really out of place, talking about planning and thinking ahead and presuming that we'll have tomorrow. But what I think he's saying here is this. Sins of omission, which is what he's addressing, happen most often when we are locked into our own agenda and our own plan, and we don't slow down and stop to see what God is doing around us and in the people around us. And James says, when you lock in on planning and thinking that you know everything, you are going to miss all of these opportunities, these Ephesians 2.10 moments, that, these works that God has prepared in advance for you to do. You are going to miss them because you're worried about your own agenda and your own plan. And he's bringing that up that, hey, that is a sin. 
So how would I summarize all of these five verses? It's a packed five verses. I'd give you these two things, okay? Here's what James is calling us to do. To live intentionally and to invest eternally. You know, our tendency is to live today for tomorrow or tomorrow for today. And what I mean by that is we live today only thinking about tomorrow, so we miss the moments. We're just constantly worried about what's coming. Or we live tomorrow for today and just think in the past, and we can't get past the good old days and remembering what was. And we miss that we have opportunities now to live intentionally today. And so when we seize those opportunities with our eyes focused on eternity, we actually find more purpose, hope, life in the moments today than we could ever find elsewhere. And we start to really decide whose kingdom we're going to be building, ours, which will crumble, or the Lord's, which is eternal. But we are in a place that says, you are crazy if you believe this, that you would invest in something that you can't see that you would give your heart and your life and your mind and your career and your everything for something that you don't even know if it exists. I would actually say the opposite, that investing in the things of this world that we know will go away, Christian or non-Christian, like we know that death is a real thing. Investing in those is a bad investment at best. At worst, it's a sacrifice of your soul and of your life. And James is saying, man, focus on the things of eternity. When we venture to live life on our, our own goals, our own aspirations, it's really one of two things can happen. We can either be disappointed because we don't meet them, or maybe even worse, we meet them and we're satisfied by them. And that's where we find our life and our identity, and we completely miss that there is something greater that the Lord has in store for us. Now, you see this invest internally, and some of you might go, this is where he's going to ask for us to invest in the Bentonville campus, okay, and to give. Uh, no, that, that's a great thing. Is that a worthy cause to give to? Absolutely, right? And do I want that campus to be built soon, Lord willing, right? Um, see what I did there? Yeah. <laughs> Let it sink in. But investing eternally has so much more to do than just money. Man, it's about seeing everything in our lives through an eternal lens, right? Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's one of my favorite theologians. He's a German guy who writes this. Um, He was killed by the Nazis, but always had his mind focused on the Lord. Back in the 1940s, he said, Christianity preaches the infinite worth of that which is seemingly worthless and the infinite worthlessness of that which is seemingly so valued. Think about that. The lens of the gospel flips the script for us. And it teaches us that the things that just seem like they matter so much actually don't and will disappear. And the things that seem like they're so far off and maybe they don't matter, and that's where true value is found. That's what the gospel does for us as we think about our tomorrows, we think about what's coming. I want you to write these down if you're taking notes. Um, If you need to take a picture, I'm going to run through these really quick. This is not a personal inventory for us to do this morning, but this is something I'd love for you all to do. Uh, either as individuals or as a family uh, sometime this week. It'll probably take 15 minutes to run through this. Uh, But it's four questions that I think will help us process uh, what we've talked about this morning. Number one, in what ways am I clinging too tightly to this world? What are the things that I'm just holding on to too closely that I'm not willing to let go of? Number two, where have I put my will before God's will? Where have I said, Uh, actually my decision and what I desire matters more than what I think God wants me to do in this moment. 
And then the last two, how can I or we as a family invest or live intentionally? What are the moments that we can seize today and actually live for the Lord? And then that fourth one, how can I or we as a family invest eternally? How can we give our time, talents, treasures to the Lord, investing in people and relationships and the things that He's doing? I want to end with this, these verses that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You know, the gospel doesn't change reality for us. It clarifies it. The reality is that we will all die one day, right? And the things on this earth that we've accumulated will not go with us. And honestly, we probably won't even be remembered. Talk about some encouragement for this morning, right? Those, those are the three things. But when you put on the lens of the gospel and you let your eyes adjust a little bit, you see something different and you see that, yes, we do die, but man, there's an eternity that exists and is available for us. And yes, nothing can go with us, the things that we accumulate on this earth, but we have a chance to invest in the things that will never die and the eternal things that God says, that's where your treasure and your heart should be. And yeah, we probably won't be remembered. We could do the whole who knows their great-grandfather's name, great-great-grandfather, and it would hit us really hard. We won't be remembered, but we have a chance to enter eternity and be fully known forever into the family of God. And so that's why we teach on these things about living intentionally and investing eternally. It's because there's something bigger. And when we, put, when we fix our eyes on Jesus and the things that are after this world, it actually gives us more purpose, more hope, more life than we could ever find from anything in the world. And we see that there is life after this world, and it came from the man who came into this world to give his life. And that's why we do what we do. That's why we gather on Sunday mornings is to realign ourselves with the truth of God, that he loves us, that he has our tomorrow in his hands, that he is in control, and that our eyes should be fixed on him, to live for him intentionally and to always have our eyes fixed on eternity and living that way. Let me pray for us. We're going to sing one or two more songs before we leave. Lord, we love you and give you this time as a time of worship as we reorient our mind and our hearts and our lives on the truth that is you, God. And while there are hard truths that we have to wrestle with because of the fall, like death and those types of things, God, there is salvation and there is hope found in you that we know when we meet those moments, man, it doesn't have to be the end because when we put our faith in you, God, we enter into eternity in relationship with the loving Father who's created us. So God, we, as we close and as we think about going forward and investing, God, in the future of eternity while living intentionally, we give you this time as a time of worship.